Good morning, Sovereign Grace. If you will turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to continue in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. I'll just read through that text again, Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. And we'll continue discussing the work of Christ that our author is laying out here before us. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll start in verse 1. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual, their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus having obtained or secured an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we study what your Spirit has superintended at the hand of the Apostle in the letter to the Hebrews, for the sake not only of the first century Christians, but for the sake of Christians everywhere in every era. We ask that you would help us to understand that your Spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the church that we would hear from the head of the church, 
our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the Spirit through the Word, that we would understand what it means that He offered Himself as a penal substitutionary atonement. That He, in our place, stood condemned. That He bore the wrath due to us, shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And that the whole of the Scripture witnesses to His coming to that end and to the fact that He's come. And it is this act, this work of the cross, this atonement for our sins, that is the reason we sing and pray and preach that it is the act of Christ, the work of Christ upon and around which we gather for worship. We pray that you'd help us to understand this more. Lead us astray, excuse me, lead us away from going astray, from going into error. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's long been central to Protestant Christian worship to speak about preach about and sing about the blood of Christ or the death of Christ. Think of the song, What Can Wash Away My Sins? And we repeat as a congregation, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Have you ever thought really about how much we focus on the blood of Christ, on the death of Christ, on the cross of Christ? As the Lord brought his final plague upon Egypt, he instructed Israel to spill the blood of a lamb and spread that blood on doorposts if they wanted their own firstborn sons to live. Think of that. Spill the blood of an animal and spread it on your doorposts and you'll live. Further, after the tabernacles erected in Exodus, we come to the end of Exodus and no one can enter, not even Moses. None can come into the holy presence of God without a blood sacrifice, without the slaying of an animal. So we read of many blood sacrifices in Leviticus, culminating in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where the animals are drained of their blood and it's sprinkled on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Further, when we come to the New Testament, Christ institutes a meal in which we drink his blood and eat his flesh. He goes to the cross and sheds his blood, and his body is broken for us. Thus, Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. We tell people that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. We sing, there is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus' veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Here's a question. Are we overly obsessed with blood atonement? See, many scholars and pastors today and in prior generations are embarrassed of all this blood atonement talk, of this talk of 
animals being slain on our behalf, of Christ, God's Son, being slain on our behalf. They think immediately of pagan deities who capriciously want sacrifices. They want to de-emphasize penal substitutionary atonement. That's what it's called, penal substitutionary atonement. And emphasize Christ as victor over Satan. What does that mean? Well, Protestants have long confessed, we as Protestant Christians have long confessed that the central message of the gospel is that the Father, in love, sent his Son, Jesus, to pay for our sins on the cross. He paid the penalty due to us. God's wrath was poured out upon him on the cross. It's penal because he took our penalty, the wrath due to us. It's substitution because he stood in our place. In our place condemned he stood. And it's atonement because it satisfies the wrath of God. It appeases God's righteous, just wrath. We have taught that that's what the cross of Christ is about. He came to to atone for our sins, to satisfy God's wrath against us for our sins. He went to the cross to spill his blood, to die in our place so that we might be redeemed, bought back, freed from slavery, reconciled to God. We might have peace with God, brought near to God in Christ. But this offends many modern scholars and pastors and has offended scholars and pastors in the past as well. It seems all a bit too grotesque for them. They would rather see the cross as being primarily about Christ conquering Satan or Christ providing an example of humility or Christ just showing us his love for us. And, and, And that's all true. See, they say Jesus put Satan under his feet at the cross and resurrection, and that's all the cross is really about. And that's false. British author Steve Chalk, or Chalky, I don't know how you say his name, he's a British author, has called our view, the view that we take, penal substitutionary atonement, he has called that view cosmic child abuse. Listen to his quote. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. Never mind, incidentally, that in 1 John 4, 8, when he says God is love, John goes on to say that um, this is here in his love, not that God first loved us, or excuse me, that we first loved God, but that God first loved us and gave his son as a propitiation, a wrath bearer for our sins. But it's in total contradiction God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it, is a, it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and refuse to pay, repay evil with evil. So I hope you hear the argument. God is love does not comport with God gave his son as a wrath bearer for our sins. Though 
1 John 4, 9 and 10 clearly say God gave his son as a wrath bearer for our sins because he's love. But it can't mean that. In fact, many in this camp, Chalk's camp, argue that we are not God's enemies. We are not God's enemies in the sense that we have offended a holy God and his wrath burns against us. Rather, we're opposed to him, not he's opposed to us. God does not have wrath toward his enemies, but rather his enemies hate him and oppose him. They argue that what God opposes is not sinners like us, but rather Satan, sin, and death. God is opposed to Satan, sin, and death. And that's all true, but God is not opposed to sinners. That's where they go wrong. Thus they say Christ has victory over Satan's sin and death on the cross. But Christ does not bear the wrath due to you and me because there is no wrath due to you and me. He atones for sin and death, but he does not atone for you and me. Now, this is all grounded in their prior belief that God does not, he just does not punish sinners in hell for eternity as a just judgment. A loving God would never do that. They do not believe God will cast sinners into eternal hell. But somehow, he's going to cast sin and death there. The God of conservative, if you will, Christianity, of historic Christian orthodoxy, of Protestantism, the God of the Bible, the holy and just God, the God who punishes sinners, they say, is really a hateful and vindictive God not a loving God. The God who would pour out the wrath due to sinners is a hateful God, they argue. Popular progressive author Brian Zahn argues in this this same direction in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Now you might, might think these men aren't being listened to by conservatives. When Brian Zahn argues in opposition to Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, when he writes, no, we're sinners in the hands of of a loving God, and that God is in no way opposed to us and doesn't have wrath bearing down upon us, when he argues that, you might think, fine, Steve Chalk and and Brian Zahn, but, but are conservative evangelicals even listening to them? Are the kinds of people that we would read, the kinds of people that we might hear preach, the kinds of churches that we might attend, are, are they even talking about that? And if they're not, then why mention it? You'd be wrong to assume that conservative evangelicals are not going down this road. Now, you might say, by definition, they're longer conservative evangelicals, but they still exist in our world and are seen as such. The views of Brian Zahn and Steve Chalk and N.T. Wright are being embraced by many. But these evangelicals, while embracing Steve Chalk and Brian Zahn and N.T. Wright, are retaining our language and redefining it. Evangelical pastor who leads a megachurch, an evangelical pastor who leads a megachurch down in Escondido, California, Ryan Paulson, is a pastor who quotes Zahn and N.T. Wright positively on multiple occasions in multiple public blog posts. He wrote the following on his blog, um, a blog post titled, Four Days That Changed the World. Here's what he wrote. There's a lot of talk these days 
about penal substitutionary atonement. There's been a lot of talk throughout history about penal substitutionary atonement. That's not new to these days. But that's a cue to you that an evangelical pastor is about to reframe the discussion. A lot of talk these days about penal penal substitutionary atonement. A lot of people wondering, what do we do with that doctrine? Well, that doctrine is the core of our faith. It is the heart of the gospel. What do we do with the heart of the gospel, the core of faith? But he doesn't believe that. So he goes on to say, one of the things I would say is that I believe in penal substitutionary atonement. Good, good so far, though the rest of the argument throughout that blog, he's already been refuting it or redefining it. He says, but I believe, here you go, I believe we need to define it better. And to define it better means we need to define it differently. If, we, if by penal we mean that God is punishing Jesus, it's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that he's punishing sin. So what's being punished? Sin and death. Not you and me, and not Jesus in our place. Did you catch that? I believe in penal substitution if we can define it differently. We just need to take out that bit about God punishing sinners and Jesus being punished in our place. Let's just take that bit out. Now, this is, this is a man who's leading a church. I don't pick on him. I just saw his articles online. Um, he's a man who's, who's leading a church that was, for many years, an Orthodox Protestant church, a church that has thousands of members, and yet he popularly and publicly teaches this. If you press the same pastor on the question of eternal hell, he would necessarily deny that doctrine. For if you deny that God is justly punishing sinners, then hell will be denied with it. We'll just be told that a loving God does not do that. So what's happening on the cross? What's happening on the cross for Paulson or Chalk or Wright or others? Paulson argues that we have missed the point of Jesus' cry. We call it the cry of dereliction, where he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we claim that he's crying that out because the Father has turned his wrath upon the Son, upon Jesus in our place, then we have missed the point. We miss the point when we claim that Jesus is being punished for our sins. Jesus, he says, is not being punished for our sins, And he is not because God is not seeking to punish us for our sins. Jesus is identifying with human beings, he says. He's identifying with human beings who have been separated from God by sin and death. And so he's punishing, if you will, sin and death, but not sinners. In this, Paulson follows Steve Chalk, the man who called penal substitutionary atonement cosmic child abuse when Chalk argued that Jesus is identifying with our suffering due to sin and death on the cross. That's what he's doing. He's identifying with our suffering. So while evangelicals like Paulson claim to believe in penal substitutionary atonement, they redefine what it is. But this redefining of penal substitution is also growingly popular in missions circles today. That's why I'm coming after this, because we're running into it In our ministry with Radius International, as we train missionaries to go to the field, we're running into it with evangelical pastors we know 
churches with whom we've shared some partnership. And so it needs to be defined and dealt with. Missionaries are increasingly embracing the notion of preaching a different gospel to different contexts. God has resolved fear and shame and guilt in the gospel. So when we go to a people group that deals with, for example, honor and shame, we don't bring in, here's their language, we don't bring in the foreign and modern Western notion of legal guilt and atonement for that guilt. Now, these missionary speakers and authors will not come out and publicly deny penal substitutionary atonement. They do not. But they will follow this line of redefining terms and speaking about emphasizing different themes in different cultural contexts. Growingly popular missiologist Jackson Wu probably the leader of this movement intellectually among missiologists, argues this very thing in his blog post, Identifying God's Enemies and Ours. He will argue he believes in penal substitution while denying what it actually means. Jason Georges, another popular missiologist who speaks at evangelical Bible colleges, even at one I taught at, and who graduated from the same seminary which I graduated from, argues that penal substitution is a construct of Western legal minds during the Reformation period. And it is ineffective to teach in other non-Western cultures. See, penal substitution is an emphasis of the gospel, but not central to the gospel. Now, he does not, Jason Georges does not outright deny penal substitutionary atonement. He just sees it as one cultural contextualization of the gospel, which is true and particularly good for Western legal types. J. Gresham Machen, the great Princeton scholar who started Westminster Seminary in Pennsylvania and who wrote the famous book, Christianity and Liberalism, he wrote that book in 1923, 1924, right in that time period, so about 100 years ago, was dealing with this exact same kind of liberalism. In fact, in his book, Christian Liberalism, in chapter 4 on salvation, he spoke of how the liberals of his day were using our terms for penal substitution and redefining them. He went on to say, they, here's a quote, they, the liberal preachers, speak with disgust of those who believe that the blood of our Lord shed in substitutionary death, placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner. Against the doctrine of the cross, they use every weapon of caricature and vilification. Thus they pour out their scorn upon a thing so holy and so precious that in the presence of it, the Christian heart melts in gratitude too deep for words. It never seems to occur to modern liberals that in deriding the Christian doctrine of the cross, they are trampling on human hearts. Was Machen right? Is penal substitution the Christian doctrine of the cross? Is it really so central that to deride penal substitution, to redefine it in some other way, is to trample on human hearts? Well, I want to look at that this morning. I want to look at that this morning, and I want to ask, are we so obsessed, are we obsessed with a father who rages against sinners, can't wait to destroy them, but somehow 
His love overcame his hatred, and thus he sent his son to be abused on our behalf. Have we gotten the gospel wrong? Have we overemphasized penal substitution, the idea that God's wrath abides upon us and that blood must be spilled for us, that death and hell are the just punishment for sin? Have we misunderstood Paul when he wrote, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Have we misunderstood John when he wrote, Because God is love, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. Did we misunderstand Jesus when he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, this morning we're going to look at that question by looking at Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 together. However, this sermon is just really a beginning to that answer. The next several weeks in Hebrews 9 through 10, we will continue to answer that as the whole text is about how Jesus, as the great high priest, the mediator of the new covenant, has offered a better sacrifice than was being offered in the old covenant by the old covenant priests. And we are talking about blood sacrifices being offered by priests and covenants being cut in blood. And as we talk about that, we're having to ask, what's that about? Why all this talk of blood sacrifices? We will look at that question today. And it will continue to come up over the next several weeks as we move through Hebrews 9 and chapter 9 and 10. So today we want to look specifically at Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, as we looked at Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 last week. We want to see what Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 is saying about all this. And I want to offer two points this morning. First, Christ is the substance of the Old Testament sacrificial types. Now, I argued that largely last week, but it picks up again in verse 11, so I want to come back to it. And second, Christ's blood alone can satisfy God's wrath against us and bring us forgiveness of sins. And that's where we'll spend the majority of our time. But first, let's look at the first point. Christ is the substance of the Old Testament sacrificial types. Look at verse 11 of Hebrews 9. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Now, the word but at the beginning of this in verse 11, but, is a contrast. It's adversative. It's contrasting what he's about to say with what he just said. It's contrasting the Old Testament sacrificial system and worship with the coming of Christ. The Old Testament sacrificial system and the tabernacle worship in Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 
was in place until the time of Reformation. It was a type and shadow and parable teaching and pointing forward to the good things to come. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. So in the new covenant, there's a change. We were looking at old covenant worship, tabernacle, sacrifices, last week in Hebrews 9, 1 through 10. And the author was telling us that those things were teaching us about the good things to come, about the time of reformation. And now, in verse 11, we're transitioning to the fact that the good things have come because Christ has appeared. And what's the change in the new covenant? Well, the old covenant taught us about, gave types and shadows of, provided parables and pictures of the good things to come. But now Christ has come in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. He has come as our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he has brought in the good things that folks in the old covenant were waiting for. He has perfected that work which the old covenant priests could never perfect. See, the old covenant priests pointed to the perfection. They taught about the perfection, but Christ accomplished the perfection. He perfected it. He finished it. But please note that the old covenant sacrificial system and tabernacle were not just placeholders while God was biding his time. They were teachers. Look at Hebrews 9, 8. By this the Holy Spirit indicates or teaches. The Holy Spirit was teaching through those old covenant priests, those old covenant sacrifices, those, that old covenant tabernacle. He was teaching. He was pointing forward. He was making a way for the coming Christ and the fulfillment of God's promises. Those were types and shadows. Christ is the substance, which leads to my second point because I dealt with this in depth last week. So let's look at my second point. Christ's blood alone, Christ's blood alone can satisfy God's wrath against us and bring us forgiveness of sins. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not the tabernacle on earth that that was set up by the Jews, he entered once for all into the holy places, the holy of holies. Now catch this, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And this last phrase should be translated, the having secured redemption or having obtained eternal redemption. That's what it should be. The tense here is wrong in the ESV. Christ appeared, accomplishing the work of atoning for our sins then entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven, of which the earthly tabernacle was merely a type. But note how he entered the Holy of Holies in heaven. What was the means of Christ's entrance into the Holy of Holies in heaven? 
he gives two things there. He first tells us what the means was not. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Now we need to explain what's being said here. Let's deal first with the not statement. Not by means. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves. What does that mean? Why was the blood of goats and calves ever being shed? What's that a reference to? Well, it's a reference to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. As sinners, as violators of God's law, we could not enter his holy presence for worship. Could not. He dwelt in holiness behind the curtain, behind the veil, in the Holy of Holies, which we could never enter. Like the cherubim and the flaming sword that guarded the Garden of Eden when man was kicked out of God's presence in judgment. As that flaming sword threatened death to all who tried to enter, so if you tried to enter the Holy of Holies where cherubim were also on the curtain, you would die. Why? Because you're a sinner and God is holy. If you enter before him, you will die. That's why we hear again and again God telling his people, even Moses in the Old Testament, do not come near. And because God's righteous wrath abides on all sinners, we could only come into his presence through a blood sacrifice. God promised to send the Messiah. In all of these blood sacrifices in the Old Testament, God was promising to send the Messiah who would be, to use the language of Isaiah, in his suffering servant, if you will, him, who would be crushed for our iniquities, who would be pierced for our transgression, our rebellion against God's law. God promised a suffering servant who would bear our chastisement, our punishment. And in doing so, in bearing our punishment, bring us peace. He would lay upon the Christ the iniquity of us all. He would be cut off, stricken, suffer judgment for our transgression, for it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to make an offering for our guilt, to bear the sin of many, to pour out his soul to death. That's all just in Isaiah 53. Christ was coming for this reason, and those Old Testament types and shadows were pointing to this reality. The Day of Atonement was the great picture of all this. It was a type of what happened at the cross. The high priest, one day per year, the high priest would make an offering for his own sin and then the sins of the people. He would shed the blood of a bull and a goat. He would take the blood, and by means of that blood, he would enter into the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain, in the earthly tabernacle, and make an offering for sin. He would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat, and that offering would propitiate or satisfy the wrath of God. It would satisfy God's wrath against Israel. 
Further, it would expiate, wash us clean, bring forgiveness to us, our sin. We would be cleansed and forgiven. But this was a temporary and typological ceremony. It pointed forward to the great day of atonement, when Christ would offer himself without blemish through the eternal spirit. See, the old covenant day of atonement could only cleanse the external and only temporarily. He says that repeatedly in Hebrews 9. That's why the day of atonement happened every single year. But Christ could offer a sacrifice that redeems us internally and eternally, once for all. Now, now one of the questions that comes up is, but why the need for blood? Why the need for blood? Look at Leviticus chapter 17. Keep your hand in Hebrews 9. And look at Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. This follows teaching about the Day of Atonement. And Israelites, the Is- Israel was told not to eat the blood of animals, um, and for a very particular reason, because of what the blood taught, what it pictured, what it symbolized. Look at verse 11 of Leviticus 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you, this is the Lord speaking, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You hear that? The life is in the blood. You know this because when someone's blood leaves their body, their life is gone. They have died. The life is in the blood, and thus it's the shedding of blood, the taking of the life, in other words, the death of the victim, the sacrifice, that makes atonement for your souls. In other words... There must be a life sacrificed, blood shed, a sacrifice given over to death to atone for you and for me. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. We'll just go forward a bit. Hebrews 9 verse 22. Indeed, under the law... Almost everything is purified with blood. And now catch this. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins precisely because the offense against God must be atoned for, and it's atoned for with death. That's the penalty. God does not just wave his hand like a wand for the forgiveness of sins. God forgives us only as a result of Christ making atonement for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ went to the cross to bear our sins and the wrath due to us for our sins. And this leads to the means. So that's He did not enter by the blood of goats and calves. Now this leads to the means by which Christ did enter the Holy of Holies in heaven. 
Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12 again. He entered once for all. Once for all. Not every year. Once for all. Into the holy places. That's the holy of holies in heaven. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, having secured an eternal redemption. See, he entered the Holy of Holies in heaven once for all by what means? By means of his own blood, by means of his own death, by means of his own sacrifice. He could enter, he could enter by means of his own blood because he obtained, he secured eternal redemption by means of his own blood. He did not accomplish a temporal redemption. He did not make atonement that carried us over until the next year. He made a sacrifice once for all. He obtained an eternal redemption. He paid the penalty due to us for sin, really all our sin, for all time. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, in other words, not the holy of holies in the tabernacle on earth, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, where the true things are, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, as a high priest goes into the presence of God. He does too, on our behalf. Nor was it to, to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, if you will, every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, the time of reformation, the latter days, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, Christ has made atonement for us once for all time. And Christ could obtain eternal redemption for us because Christ is the God-man. As the God-man, Christ is one with God and one of us. So the atonement can be accomplished by him. He can purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Why can he do that? Look at Hebrews 9 and verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats, or goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, in other words, they cleanse the outside of the person, how much more will the blood of Christ the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, the internal man, from dead works to serve 
the living God. Now, why can Christ purify us internally, take care of our spiritual problem for eternity? For two reasons. One, because he offered himself, notice what it says in verse 14, he offered himself without blemish to God. Now, the first objection we ought to bring to someone like Steve Chalk or others who argue that Christ, um, that for God to give his son for the propitiation for our sins is some kind of cosmic child abuse, is to point out to them that unlike animals who were unaware of what was happening and who went to atone for us involuntarily, Christ was quite aware of why he came, and he went voluntarily. No one takes the life of the Son from him. He lays it down of his own accord. He set his face for Jerusalem. He knew precisely what he was doing. He was conscious of it. He came for that end. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he was a perfect and sinless sacrifice. When he offered himself up, he offered himself up perfectly, sinlessly. He had no sin. He had no uncleanness. His perfect law-keeping life His perfect righteousness was sufficient holiness for him to draw near to God in worship. So he offered himself without blemish. That's why the author in Hebrews is keen to tell us that he was tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. That unlike sacrifices before him, he is pure and holy. Further, He offered himself through the eternal spirit. If you look there at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now he offered himself according to his human nature. I want you to understand that. And not according to his divine nature. But he offered himself according to his human nature which is in union with his divine nature. He offered himself through the eternal spirit. Through the eternal spirit. He is the God-man. Now, on the cross, he died according to his humanity. But his humanity, when he died on the cross, was in union with his divine nature. And thus his sacrifice of himself is far better than all others. It is an eternally valuable and powerful offering. This is how he obtains or secures an eternal redemption. He did not redeem us for a time. But he bought us back for eternity. Only the God-man can do that. And this is why his blood can purify our conscience. The blood of bulls and goats could provide temporary and external cleanness so that God might be approached once per year and only by the high priest. Christ's blood, our great Melchizedekian high priest, has cleansed us inwardly and eternally so that he has torn the veil and carried us with him 
into God's presence for worship. We cannot, we can now, we can now draw near to God in worship through Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews in this whole section 9 through 10 is driving us at an application. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. He's driving us toward this application. He gives exposition throughout Hebrews and then he gives exhortation. Here's the exposition. Here's what I'm teaching you doctrinally. Now here's the exhortation, the application, what you do with it. Verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, because Christ has brought us near to God in himself, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, here it is, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, this is what is meant when Hebrews says that we are purified from dead works to serve in a priestly way, to serve or worshipful way, to serve the living God. We can now enter in worship and offer our lives as a sacrifice of praise that pleases the Father. And it pleases him because of the sweet smell of the sacrifice of his Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the Father sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice because he loves us. And the Son came and offered himself as an atoning sacrifice because he loves us. And the Holy Spirit came and united us to Christ through faith, giving us new life in Christ and adopting us as sons of God because he loves us. The love of God is not having to overcome the wrath and justice of God at the cross. The love of God and the just wrath of God meet at the cross. His just wrath for our sin necessitated atonement for our sin if we were to be reconciled to him. His eternal love for his people was the fountain of his promise to send the Son and of his coming to atone for our sin. Don't pit God against himself. He is just and he is love. Those two attributes of God are in fact shown most brilliantly as they are held up together with one another in the cross of Christ. You see, the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus is not just some mere emphasis of the gospel. It is the heart of the gospel. It is why we are Christians, why we can draw near to God in worship. It is the message we proclaim. It is the message we sing. It is the message that allows us to pray to God in confidence. And thus we sing, 
Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks that you loved us and gave him for us as a propitiation, a wrath-bearer for our sins. We know that we stood condemned, rightly, justly condemned under your wrath for our sins. And we know that you loved us and sent your Son as a propitiation for us, to bear your wrath for us, so that we might be forgiven our sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, reconciled to you, redeemed from sin and Satan and death, eternally yours, able to approach you in worship, to draw near in Christ and by the Spirit. We don't deserve this. We give thanks that you did it anyway. It is only because of your great love, and it is the reason that we sing and pray and preach and gather as a church. Father, may you keep us from error with regard to this gospel truth. May you guard your church from error. May you bring repentance to those who have swerved off into error. And may you empower our missionaries to endure and faithfully go to the most difficult places on earth and preach the gospel of penal substitutionary atonement so that people might be saved and be able to draw near to you, that we might together have the privilege of drawing near to you in worship at the end of all things with people from every tribe and tongue and nation singing of the worthiness of the Lamb who was slain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.